You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Jill Shalvis is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author who has written more than 50 acclaimed award-winning romance novels. She's a three-time winner of the National Reader's Choice Award and has been nominated for the Rita Award and for Romantic Times Career Achievement Award. Her latest novel, The Family You Make, will be released on Tuesday, January 11th. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Jill Shalvis. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Jill, I always like to say that um, this show is about uncorking the stories behind the stories. So I'm curious, uh, where does your story as a writer begin? Um, my mom used to say I could make up stories before I could hold a pencil. So apparently it came from my very early ability to lie. <laughs> so what, I mean, do you remember any of those early stories that you were making up for your mother back in so long ago? I don't remember this. This was something that was told to me. Apparently I colored I used crayons on the wall. And when she asked me who had done it, I told her Batman, because to me, Batman was real. So it seemed like a conceivable cover story. I had no idea that I was, that was my first big lie. Why not? I mean, why wouldn't the dark Knight come in and just kind of color all over your mom's walls? It just makes perfect right. sense. Oh my God, that's funny. Now, what, what Batman were you kind of referring to back in those days? Did you, uh... I mean, we know this was in the ice age, right? Or before the ice age, even. So I don't even know where that came from, but I continued to tell stories. I still love to tell stories. I mean, it's really nice that they, they pay me to make shit up for a living. You might have to cut that. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, we would, this is uh we, we can, we can say, we can say whatever you want to say. There's no, no restrictions on language here. I, you know, you could say shit, fuck, man, whatever. Um, you know, no, I like to say, you know, George Carlin talks about the seven dirty words and Mike Carlin can, can talk about them as well. So okay, it's good to know. I always forget to remind myself not to swear like a sailor on these things. No, no, no. I just want you to be yourself. So um, when, when did you get, get the sense that you could make a career out of making up stories and, you know, for, for a living? That came much, much later. I went to college as a journalism major at Cal State Northridge and I quickly learned that I was not going to be the girl they put in front behind, you know, in front of the camera with the microphone. So I was writing stories for those people and I kept embellishing the stories and my professors kept giving me bad grades. And I would say, what am I doing wrong? And they would say the same thing. My mother used to say, you're lying. Like you can't do that in nonfiction. So that's when I realized I had a taste for 
stories. <laughs> you know, I finally realized, okay, maybe, maybe there's something to this. I'm in supposed to be in fiction, not nonfiction. So that's when I first started writing back in the day. And I wrote a lot of short stories, but there wasn't a lot of money in that. And so I was working by day as a full charge bookkeeper. And at night I would write and that hurt my brain. <laughs> Two very different sides of the brain. And, but it was a long, long time before I ever submitted a book. It was years. I think I was 30 before, even mid thirties before I figured out, I want to make a career out of this. Wow. So up until that time, were you, were you always working as a bookkeeper or did you, did you branch out from that and do anything creative before you started writing for a living? I um, was always writing, but it was journals and short stories while working as a full charge bookkeeper. And then I got pregnant and I was low man on the totem pole. So I got let, let go while I was pregnant. And I thought, I don't want to ever go back to that job because I spent, then I could spend my days writing. And so that's what I did. And I was one of the very few lucky ones that I sold almost right away. So almost from the time I decided to be a fiction writer, I was able to sell. And I started off writing very small category romances for Harlequin and Silhouette back in the day. That was my bread and butter, the kind of genre, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. And I loved it. I was in heaven doing that and staying home with my babies. So that was awesome. Wow. So uh, it was like a training ground for me, actually. In what ways? In what ways was it a training ground? Because those stories, even though they're short and they seem so simple, they're really hard to tell. You have a certain amount of words, you have a formula you have to do, and yet you have to make it different enough that readers want to read you. And so it was a challenge and it really taught me how to write a tight story. It taught me a lot about how to get characterization across very quickly from the beginning and how to wrap things up without going on too long. Yeah. So about how much time elapsed between when you decided, hey, I want to, I want to make a living doing this, um, and and sort of crafting, you know, your 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 kind of first short story, and then and actually publishing it. My first book came out, I think, in 1998, maybe, and and so that was probably, I mean, I like I said, I got lucky. So when I first when I got laid off, when I was pregnant, that's when I went from writing short stories to writing myself a full-length novel. I'd been reading romance for years. In fact, when I was in high school, I used to have to walk home and half, it was a long walk, like a couple of miles and halfway home was a library. And I would go inside the library. I'd go into the way back where they had uncategorized romance novels by the hundreds on these racks. And I would sit in the bean bear chair and I would hold out, get out my chemistry book. And I put the, one of those romances in front of my chemistry book. And I would be reading romances to my heart's content rather than doing my homework. Um, I mean, I didn't just get my sexual education out of those naughty historicals. I actually learned how to tell a story. You know, there's turning points and there's drama and how to come to a black moment and how to res resolve those black moments. And so it was, it was awesome. I mean, I didn't do very well in science those years, but I really did good in English. <laughs> well, it seems like you're reading about chemistry, but just a different type of chemistry. Yes, very different, very different. And so it was then that I kind of got this yearning to do more and bigger stories, but it was many, many years before I actually got to it. Well, what, what do you suppose drove you to, to romance as a genre? It had been what I'd been reading mostly. Actually, when I first wrote my first, I shouldn't say that because I was also reading suspense and thrillers and, and autobiographies. I mean, I'd read a back of a cereal box, you know, I'll read the TV guide, I'll read anything. So when I started writing my book, I didn't really understand. I hadn't started doing the category novels yet, the category romances. So I didn't really understand genre. 
So I wrote my first book and I thought it was a suspense. And then when the editor called and said, we want to buy your book, but we need you to add some more romance to it. Like if it's hinted at, but we need you to make it more because we're going to sell it as a romantic suspense. And that's when I first realized, okay, now there's a genre and I have, if I sell it, like I have to, I have to, to really know what I'm selling. So then I started reading with a different eye, an eye for the actual genre. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that kind of being lucky um, and, and things kind of happening fast for you. Um, and that's sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of the uh, exception rather than the rule, you know, in, in most of the conversations I have, you know, most, most people talk about, you know, uh, querying a lot and taking a long time to find an agent and taking a long time to kind of find the right, the right publisher. Why do you suppose it happened um, a little bit differently for you? And I don't know that I would say quickly because I had been telling stories for 10, 15 years up until that point and getting nowhere. I just happened to be writing in the wrong place. I was doing nonfiction things or I was doing short stories, things that I wasn't, my writing wasn't actually suited for. So when I finally figured out what it was, I felt like it had taken my whole lifetime to get there. It didn't feel like it happened fast. What did happen fast was that I got, I was lucky enough to sell my first story once I, my first novel, once I had written it, but it took a lot of revisions because I didn't know what I was doing. I had to go back in and add the romance to it. And once I had done that, I realized that what I was reading mostly was what I wanted to write. It just seemed very natural to go. But then to be honest, it, I stayed in category for another eight or 10 years and before I started writing the bigger stories. So it, it was years before I hit the New York Times, for instance, nothing happened fast. It felt very slow. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Um, well, talk to me about the family you make. I, I know it's part of a new series that you're writing. Um, you know, tell me about, you know, about the genesis of this story, how it came to you, and, and why you felt like this was you know, the, the time to, to write it. Well, I'd always been fascinated. Um, for me, I'm a TV girl, a movie girl. I'm very visual. So the meet cute was always super important to me. The premise is always super important to me, even though I think I'm more known for characters than I am for plot. That's true, I love the characters, but I, I also, it's very important to me when I start a story that I have a premise. So this premise had come to me a long time ago about two people stuck in some sort of situation where they were sure they were going to die. Because when you think you're going to die, that's when you know somebody. And it was just these, I just had this image of two people stuck alone and there was gonna be no way out. How would they behave? How would they act towards one another? And you really see someone's character when you're in that kind of situation. And then I wanted them to have maybe made a promise or given each other a secret so that when, I don't think it's a spoiler for me to tell you they don't die in chapter one. How do you then go on? You know, you've, you've revealed yourself in a way that you probably never would have. So, and I kept going on and on with that premise. And finally it occurred to me that maybe these two people were on a gondola in the storm of the century, the, a blizzard of the century. This was way before it actually happened to us this last month. It might not have been so amusing to me to write if I, had, if I hadn't gone through it. Um, so they're here in this gondola, it's just the two of them. It's the end of the day. So she's the last employee to leave the resort. He's the last skier to leave the resort. And in front of them, the gondola goes down. The gondola in front of them goes down. And so they're pretty sure it's the end for them. Their gondola stops, it starts to spin, the wind's kicking up. And he calls his mom to say goodbye. But when he hears her voice, he can't do it to her. So he tells her, I just want you to know the one thing that she's always wanted for him was to be in love. I just want you to know I'm in love and I can't wait for you to meet her and I'm happy. And then he loses his power and Wi-Fi and the phone is cut off and then they don't die. And then he has to produce this love of his life for his mom. 
And so that's the premise that I had in my head for a long time. And I was working it while I was writing other stories. And finally, I got to write it. And I started it as a new series. And this Tahoe series, I had this idea that maybe I should be writing where I live because it's so great. So I started this new series called Sunrise Cove. And I, so that's the opening book in the series. Wow. 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 So, I, I mean, I'm sure you could take that in, in so many different directions. But I mean, I just the premise of kind of sitting down next to somebody and, and thinking you're going to die. Um, Rita really kind of captures me because I, I travel a lot um, for, for my day job, or I used to before this virus came around. And um, I tell you, one night I was flying back from, I think, Ar Bentonville, Arkansas, maybe. I, I can't remember. But we were flying back into New York in some really, really bad weather. And we couldn't see anything outside. Visibility was zero. And I was in one of these tiny little jets and we were bouncing up and down like we were losing and gaining altitude and and i know that things are bad when the stewardess who was in the jump seat next to me asked me to hold her hand and if i remember the rosary and i'm like okay if you're nervous i oh, should be nervous not. too <laughs> so i mean we, we we bonded in in that moment and um but yeah wow what what a, what a premise huh yeah. So you lived, obviously. I, I'm here to I'm here to talk to you. So I, I did live. I took the next day off of work. Uh, when I landed, um, my I was unshaken. My my feet were very kind of my legs were shaky on the ground, and I you know I still like get back from from LaGuardia you know in in Queens to to Connecticut. But um, yeah, it was uh, one of those harrowing experiences. But yeah, it's it's uh, that that moment of vulnerability where where she sat down and asked to hold my hand. I I'll, I'll never forget that for the rest of my life. I mean, we didn't. You know, she didn't call her mom and tell her that she found the love of her life or anything like that. But I don't think my wife would have been happy. But um, <laughs> well, you there's know. the difference between fiction and reality. But oh, that's I'm true. glad you. <laughs> I, I'm me too. Me too. Um, all right. So uh, you're writing. So this series all takes place in in sort of your home of of Lake Tahoe. Um, have you been in Tahoe for a while? Or yeah, like 23 or 24 years. We came up here when we were youngsters, and um, then I had three babies under the age of five and I was a city girl and this is like rugged mountains up here. We're in the Sierra and this is no joke. I hadn't, I had never lived in the snow. I had only skied a few times. It's the only time I ever saw snow and you know, they have like wolf spiders and bears and raccoons and wolves. And it's just crazy. The things that we've had to learn in the 20 years we've lived here, but now I feel more like I'm a mountain girl than a city girl. I always, for years and years, I felt I was a city girl in this misplaced kind of place that just seems so crazy to me. And it's also a very small town here. And LA is this huge town where you're anonymous, wherever you go, like no one ever knows you. And here you go to the grocery store and you see your gynecologist in the first aisle and you see the, the principal of the school, your kid's school in the second aisle. And so it's just so different. And when I first moved here, I started writing small towns. As, as the backdrop for my stories because it was fascinating to me when all of the cliches we'd ever been told about small turn, towns turned out to be true. And I just, <laughs> I just found the humor in that and I loved it at the same time. So I like to think I lovingly made fun of it, but I got a lot of mileage out of it and I still do. Yeah, Lake Tahoe also uh, residents to uh, aging rock musician, David Coverdale from Whitesnake. Yes, that we have a lot of them. <laughs> we have a um, lot of aging rock stars here <laughs> yeah good place to uh sort of unwind from from the, the crazy lifestyle um yes down the street there's a bar that paul mccartney sneaks into and plays 
you know, when he's in town. It's just have, fascinating. Have you ever seen him do it? I have not been lucky enough to be in the bar when he comes in, but I would have, I would love to. That would be an amazing experience. I mean, he, he, uh, he, he still sounds great. Um, and I, I don't know if you caught the, the Beatles documentary that's on, uh, I think it's on Disney. Um, but it's, uh, it's like eight hours of sort of never before seen footage about making, uh, I think they were making let it be if I, if I remember correctly, like, now I'm, I'm probably uh -huh. lying, but, um, uh, yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah, so in that way, it's just this weird little place because it is so small and then something like that happens and it feels so worldly and big city. Yeah. Well, it's a great, it's a great escapist notion too, like this idea of um, sort of kind of escaping into your own story, writing, writing about small towns. Um, I think there's so much charm there. Again, having, having traveled all over the country, I, I love these quirky little small towns that I've wound up in um, over, over the years. And imagine if you ended up living in one after being in New York and LA. And I was actually born back east. So I was born in Jersey. We lived in New York. So I feel like I still have that New York girl in me. So you can imagine, you know, going and you find these big wolf spiders and there's bears in our yard all the time. I have I post pictures about them for anyone who's fascinated by this crazy world I live in. I post pictures on Instagram and Facebook of the, the porcupine. My dog came home one day with three porcupine quills poking out her nose because she obviously put her nose where it didn't belong. Sure. You know, like these are things that happen here now. <laughs> they well, don't happen in LA. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I've got some, uh, I've got seven questions for you that I call the hot seat. Um, these are, uh, don't think too much about them. Just use your gut and uh, we'll, we'll see where, we'll see where we go. Um, first up is how do you feel when you're staring at either a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen? Happens all the time. I get so frustrated by myself because that means my outline is wrong and I've written myself into a corner and I'm, that's my fault and I have to go back and fix it and I often can't figure out how to fix it. So I usually get mad and frustrated. <laughs> so what do you do? So you, it, it sounds like you, you do you always write from an outline. Always, because otherwise that happens every single time I sit down to write. So I often trick myself. I have a very detailed outline. And by the end of the day, I usually set goals, minor word count, because I used to have page count goals, but I would cheat. I'd hit return, return, return to get to the next page. And so I had to give that up. So now I have to, I have word count goals. And um, yeah, so I try to leave an outline. So I, I try to leave myself at the end of the day in the middle of a paragraph or the middle of a scene so that the next morning I'm not looking at a blank page. Smart, smart. A nice little hack for your, yes. uh, a little goal hack for you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, what lesson about writing or publishing do you feel like you learned the hard way? Oh boy, patience. I think, I mean, really you have to be so patient in this business. Nothing happens fast. Nothing is handed to you. Really the only thing you can do for yourself is to write the best book you think you can write. There are no real hacks around that. And that takes so much patience. And that was something I don't have in spades. I did not stand in line for patience. I should have. <laughs> yeah. I like to say that when, when God was handing out patients, uh, you know, I, I didn't get as many of them as let's say some other people in my life did, but, um, <laughs> all right. So you have to be patient. And how about this one? Uh, number three, what advice would you give an aspiring author? To sit your butt in the chair and write and then write and then write some more, because this is not something you're born with. It's a skill you hone. It's not 
given to you and you can't really learn it from reading something, you can learn it from reading widely. I believe you can learn a lot from that, but really you cannot, you cannot learn to write in any other way, but sitting down and writing. And the more you do it, the better you get. It's like, it's like muscle memory or, or yeah. exercise, right? And then, then the other thing I would say is don't give up. If you believe in yourself and this is what you want to do and you, you work at honing your skill, then it will happen. Were there times in, in your journey where you wanted to throw in the towel and give up? Oh, I mean, every day, basically. <laughs> this is a hard job, and I should have said that too. Like, this isn't something you decide on a whim. You're going to be poor a lot, and you have to work hard, and you have to be your own your own taskmaster. It's not an easy job, but it's the best job. I'm uniquely suited for almost nothing else. I can't. So, so if you feel that way, then don't give up. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is like the, it, it is being self-employed, um, you know, for, for anyone who's run a business, being a, being a writer um, is, is like being your own boss and, and, you know, you don't have anyone else really who you're accountable to. I mean, I guess you're, you're accountable to your agent, your publishers, and you have timelines you have to meet, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's you and your story. Um, yeah, it really is. And it's all on you. Maybe you signed a contract and maybe you have a deadline, but if you don't produce a good book by that time, then your next deadline is not going to come. So it is all on you. Yeah. Uh, so you're a very successful author. I mean, we were in, in the introduction, I was talking about the New York Times and USA Today, um, you know, being best-selling authors on both of those lists. How do you celebrate your success? Um, you know, I'm pretty grounded here at home. I have a very large family and, uh, celebrating success is usually like you know a pizza night you know or or a fun movie night the traveling's kind of gone out the window in the last few years <laughs> so really it's quite the quiet things the little things i like to say well little you know celebrating um i think celebrating is important uh anything um you know any any kind of accomplishment but but no one no one says you have to do it in big ways i, I love the idea of a pizza night mm -hmm. me too you know, especially uh, you know, when I'm when I'm trying to cut carbs, <laughs> Pizza, yeah. you know, it's uh, it's wonderful. I could live off pizza, but that's a whole nother story. Do you do you have good pizza out in uh in um in Lake Tahoe, or do you do you have to make your own? Probably not as good as you have there in New York, but um, we make do. <laughs> you make do. All right, very good. I lived in I lived in uh outside of LA for a while, and that was my biggest complaint. I love the weather. Um, the climate was great. Didn't like the traffic, but the pizza just wasn't there. No, there's no pizza like New York. There's no bagels like New York. You know, you know, <laughs> I do. I do. I do. All right. Here's, here's a tough one. Um, if you could choose one book as a mandatory read for anybody before they die, uh, what would you choose and why? Oh boy, that's a really hard one. I don't even know if I can answer that one. Um, I think just reading in general is so important and so many people don't do that anymore. There's, I get it. There's streamers and we watch TV and we listen to the podcasts and all that. Um, but I think reading is so, so important. It's fuel for brain fuel, you know, and, and I think people skip over that. And if you don't like to read, then I always say, get an audio book and I don't even care what you read. Don't read me if you don't want to, but read or listen to something something that drives you and teaches you something and makes you excited about life. Yeah. And I don't think I'm really qualified to tell people what that might be. <laughs> uh, 
Fair enough. Um, well, you know, with two of my kids, uh, actually all three of them, I have triplets at home. Um, they are 19, about to turn closer to 20 than 19, which freaks me mm-hmm. out. Totally freaks me out. At yeah. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. That's Oof. all. Uh, all in... What's that? I don't recommend that to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I, uh, I wouldn't change a thing, but I, I, I love the fact that they've all become readers. Um, oh, that's awesome. They all become readers. My daughter, Gracie, um, she just bought like three books this weekend, is already done with one of them. Um, my son wanted a, a gift card to our local uh, small bookstore for, for Christmas, and he got it. And my other daughter is uh, kind of rereading all the Harry Potter books right now. So, oh, well, that's I love that they're reading. What is your first daughter reading? Oh, she, gosh. She was reading something um, about a band from the 60s, like a fictitious band um, from the 60s or 70s. Oh, Eclectic interests, all three yes, of them. Yes, yes, all three. Very, very eclectic. Very eclectic. But it makes me happy to, to see that. When my kids were teenagers, they're in their 20s now. It was team, either you were team Twilight or you're team Harry Potter. And there was always sure. a divide. Always a <laughs> divide. Like, I, don't read. I don't care. Just read and love it. I haven't read um, any of the Twilight books. Again, not really targeted towards me. But, not. but I did read one of the kids because the kids were all into Harry Potter. So I'm like, I should probably read these. And um, gosh, they're fantastic. Like they're, I mean, real, real page turners. But I do know that um, the, the Fifty Shades books were, were Twilight fan fiction. Um, yes. Which, uh, you know, I don't, again, not having, having not read or even seen the Twilight movies, I have no idea how those two things are related, but... Um, well, two very different genres, right? Vampire and erotic novels. So I don't even know how that happened, to be honest. <laughs> I don't. I don't either. I get, maybe the vampires get frisky. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember reading, you know, Anne uh, Anne, Anne Rice's uh, books, her vampire books. Um, I guess her vampires got a little frisky every now and then. Um, they did, they but did hey, too. you know, and vampires are people too. They need. They, we all need love right. or lust. Right or whatever you want to call it. Um, all right. So this, this one is a little, um, could get a little dark, but, um, but uh, we'll see, we'll see how you do with it. Uh, imagine that um, you're very young, you know, you've got a lot of runway ahead of you, but imagine you're in your final moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you going to be most proud about when, when, when you, when looking back on, on your life, your career, um, what do you be most proud of in your final moments? I think, my family, that we created a family. My husband and I came from almost no family, each of us. And so one thing that we always wanted was to create a family and that so that kids would have fam, our kids would have a family the way neither him nor I do. So I think that's what I'm the most proud of ever is that, you know, we had three of our own, we took land, so we raised four girls and now we have grandkids. And I just, we're all very close. We're all very connected. And I think that's what I'm most proud of. Love it. Love it. Uh, last up, question number seven. Uh, I, I, I call this the Brad Paisley question because it's, it's kind of inspired by his song Letter to Me. But if you were uh, able to write a letter to your younger self, you could pick the age, um, you, know, you know, grammar school age, high school, whatever. Uh, what advice would you give your younger self? What would you put in that letter? I would tell myself to be easier on myself for sure. I was always my harshest critic even now. And it's hard for me to think positive self, positive thoughts about myself and be encouraging. And it's much easier now because with age comes this kind of 
almost acceptance of anything. I don't really not explain it better than that. But when you're 16, you know, everything matters. And so I would like to just see that 16 year old chill out. Things are going to get better. Things are going to get better. Yeah. Uh, having, you know, three kids who are uh, three years away from being 16. Absolutely. I would love to be able to just, cause they won't listen to me. Um, but uh, you're in the very thick of it. You've got some rough years. <laughs> I know, but it's great. I'd love, I love, you know what I'd love most is just seeing them become like responsible and good human beings, you know, yeah, um, that's, that's, uh, that's what makes me smile every day. Um, that and my I, dog, um, but you know, same dog same <laughs> there you go yeah um all right so uh you know as we record this tomorrow is uh tuesday january 11th and that is uh when the family you make uh, will be uh, available for sale where would you recommend um jill that people buy this well it'll be digital print and audio so you can buy it wherever you buy your books and it, it should be on the shelves at target and walmart it's going to be at amazon barnes and noble google Kobo, wherever you buy your books. Wherever you buy books, including bookshop.org, I imagine. I always like to give them yes, a little plug sure. because yes, uh, yeah, we need to help those small independent bookstores. Um, Absolutely. And if you don't um, have a place in mind, you could go to jillchavez.com and click on the book cover and it will give you all of the links to all of those places. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, the uh, again, the book is The Family You Make. It's available tomorrow anywhere books are sold. Uh, Jill, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to, to chat with me. I loved our conversation. Thank you.